How is the process of digitization changing the world? From discussions about intimacy to the surveillance of publics, we will bring you ideas and speakers that question how digital elements are transforming our everyday lives. Welcome to the Global Digital Cultures Podcast. Welcome to, to all of you. Also, a very warm welcome to Antonia and Lorelai, our two speakers for today. Um, I am beyond excited to have them here today to talk to you. Um, we're going to talk about some complex stuff, but we're going to try to do it in a, in a fun, engaging way. And hopefully you will learn something or think about things maybe differently or more intensely than you have before. Uh, this seminar or webinar is part of the, the Global Digital Cultures Initiative. Um, there's already been a couple. You can look at those on the website, but this one specifically is on online sex work. And then more specifically within that, it's about engaging with online sex work in a complex way um, and with the complexities that come with it. Because in online sex work, a lot of sort of difficult concepts, theoretically, but also legally and just sort of generally meet each other. You, you have issues of being digital, but you have also issues of labor, legislation. Um, there's issues with experience, but then there's issues of knowledge production. There's just so much involved in this field. Um, and there's sometimes a tendency to reduce complex things to be one thing or to be something else. What Lorelei's writing and Antonia's art has really inspired um, this conversation is that actually there is ways to engage with complex issues without reducing it to being one thing or just another thing. And the first thing that I want to talk to them about and have them talk to you about um, is exactly this, engaging with those complexities and doing so through art and through writing, which they both have done brilliantly. Um, so Lorelai is going to kick us off. Um, and Lorelai is, well, really, yeah, a wonderful speaker to have here today. She is an incredibly impressive writer. She's an activist. They've written for N Plus One, the feminist porn book. They're a jurist doctor. Uh, they're a porn performer. They're a researcher with hacking and hustling. There really is so much to mention here, um, and it's incredibly impressive, and I'm really happy that they're here today. And... Um, I would, I would love to invite you to talk to us, Lorelai. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for that introduction and thank you for having us here today. Um, we had a little talk before this seminar and I'm just, the ideas that were just like coming back and forth and I'm just like so excited to be here and to be learning alongside everybody else. Um, but so to share a little bit about me, uh, I started doing sex work in the year 2000, uh, which is the same year that the Trafficking Victims Protection Act passed in the United States, uh, as well as um, the international law, both of these that passed at the same time, both um, which was called the, uh, oh my goodness, I've totally lost it. The, Anyway, it's a set of protocols that was passed in international law at the same time as the TVPA. And both of these um, laws tried to create legal paradigms for defining sex work as 
in comparison to trafficking or as separate from trafficking or as the same as trafficking. So that was the year that I started doing sex work. So I sort of entered unknowingly into this binary by which other people were going to be viewing my sex work. And that, I think that sort of became such a part of American culture that there was no way to escape these ideas. So on the one hand, you had this idea that consensual sex work is distinct from trafficking. And under the bucket of trafficking, we would include anything coercive or violent. And consensual sex work would, in this theory, mean that you are consenting and that consent usually is thought of along the same lines as consent um, as an idea that has developed around private sexual encounters. So the feminists who were supporting this definition were thinking about this idea of consent at work in, at the same time that this idea of consent in private se sexual encounters was being developed. And so that idea would include things like desire, pleasure, personal sort of initiative. Uh, and these are things that I, I think aren't applied to any other kind of work. And so I think one of the most difficult things for me over the course of the last 20 years has been trying to push back against what's often an obfuscation of other arguments I am trying to make. So consent becomes the first thing that people want to know, were you consenting or were you a victim? And that becomes a barrier to talking about labor, labor conditions, et cetera, stigma, delegitimization, um, the intersections of racism and ableism, and also economic oppression that all are very, very intertwined with sex work. And so in order to talk about this, I thought I would go into a little bit of history and I'm gonna try not to talk for too long. But um, I do think when we're talking about online sex work, people often think of online as a space that's new, a space that we don't bring our history into. Uh, and of course, that's not the case. Of course, everything that has happened before is layered beneath everything that is happening now. So just a little bit of, of the history of sex work stigma and of the law and sex work in the United States. So in the 19th century, you first have a feminist movement forming ideologies around sex work. Um, you also have at the turn of the 19th century, sex workers themselves organizing and actually uh, having a giant protest. This is actually in 1917 in San Francisco, sex workers took to the streets to protest um, gentrification in San Francisco's Tenderloin at that time. Um, and there were a hundred sex workers marching through San Francisco. Um, but so the prior to this period, the dominant paradigm of sex work was that it was done by women who were, and it's always women um, who were, impure, immoral, um, sometimes evil, sometimes, you know, evil temptresses of men uh, who were very culpable for doing something viewed as immoral. 19th century feminists, there is a specific group of 19th century religious feminists 
who decided that they were going to respond to that paradigm by describing sex workers as redeemable, as uh, often victims of, of male desire that was in its own way thought of as evil. Um, and so they created or co-created with a um, group of religious, another group of religious organizers, uh, something called the purity movement. And the idea was both to get rid of alcohol and to get rid of sex work, thinking that these were the causes of evil in men. Um, and the idea of sex workers as victims of patriarchy, victims of male lust um, was taken up again by, in the 80s by Catherine McKinnon and other um, feminists of that time. And obviously the, I'm skipping over a lot here. There's a lot that happens in between, but it's worth noting that in the 1980s, when Catherine McKinnon is writing about um, all sex, all heterosexual sex occurring under a patriarchal oppression, um, she is taking up the ideas that are, come from the 19th century. And then these ideas, Catherine McKinnon's ideas get responded to by another group of feminists who uh, developed the sex positivity movement in the 80s. Um, and that's led primarily by queer women like Cherry Moraga and Amber Hollibaugh. And they have the idea that sex could potentially be liberating. And not only that, that even under systems of oppression, you can find a sense of agency uh, and, and discover desire for yourself. Simultaneous to that, we have neoliberalism. Um, making creating a whole other paradigm for sex workers to sort of like put on uh which is the businesswoman paradigm so in the 2000s as the tvpa was passed the palermo protocols came to me thank you um that's the international law that passed um as these were passing uh these two sort of competing ideologies came to be the victim uh and victim of patriarchy, specifically ideology, and the um, neoliberal businesswoman, which has combined with the sex positivity model to create the empowered sex worker. Um, and I felt very trapped by both of these ideas. And I spent a lot of time really um, feeling as though I didn't have a lot of choice in what I could say about my life and about my sex work and feeling as though in order to push back against criminalization, to push back against stigmatization, the only option that I had was to describe my work as consenting and even empowering to say, I love sex work. I would never want to do anything else. But the reality is that uh, I came to sex work for economic reasons. And my experiences in sex work have been joy, pain, violence, uh, and most of all, just boredom. <laughs> just the the day to day uh, exertions that are part of every form of labor. And so uh, I think I should stop there. But yeah, I think I don't have like a snappy ending, but that I'm going to stop there. I'm going to pass it on to Antonia. Thank you so much, Lorelai. I think that was a fantastic history lesson. Um, very impressive that you managed to fit all of that in there as well. Um, and really brilliantly illustrates that this binary thinking 
is not necessarily helpful um, for, for actual real life experiences. And I think Antonia is maybe gonna talk to us about that a little bit more. I will also give a little introduction for Antonia um, because again, there's so much to say. Antonia is a lecturer and a researcher at Concordia University, Montreal. Um, her work focuses on sex work and platforms like Chatterbait. Uh, she, she's looked at bots and mods and apps and all these sort of technological things, but also she's an amazing artist who um, has received her PhD in part on this artwork that she's done on online sex work. Um, and it's a beautiful, brilliant way to engage with things that are really, really tricky to capture um, theoretically and reduce to one thing. And I think Antonia has found such a good and creative way to engage with issues through our art, through our writing, and I'm very excited for her um, to talk to us about that. So, please. thank you so much, and and thank you so much for the invitation, and I'm looking forward to the conversation with Lorelai, which is your presentation is is so inspiring, and there's so much to say. So I'm going to, okay. So this short presentation will explain the approach I used to investigate a work on sex webcam platform between 2014 and 2020, while where I was doing my PhD at, at Concordia University. So this was my attempt to address some of the complexities of online sex work, which is our topic today. So I was researching the American sex webcam platform Chatterbait, where thousands of people broadcast sexual performances, and some of them will receive money in exchange. In fact, on this self-defined free platform, there are not regular payments, but voluntary donation, and it's the performer's job to encourage them. The platform, however, will keep half of the money. So these free studies held the platform eluding legal issues and also sustained the domestic fiction the platform thrives on. As such, channels on the platform alcohol rooms and performers state that rather than working, they're having fun, which, which relate to the low-life presentation and, and we can uh, develop on that. The unwaged status of domestic work plus the discrimination towards sex workers allow the platform to establish abusive practices without consequence. So my aim was to investigate platform labor through this compound where sex work were at the same time at the core and the limit. However, while discriminatory practice seemed to be the platform business model, this was not the only thing happening there. People were also making connections, developing conversation, having sex or sharing recipe with the strangers, getting aroused or bored together. I realized that while the platform was indeed about the work of sex or the working of sex, it was also about the sex of work where things were in a constant flux. I want to investigate the platform critically, but without forgetting that it was a lie. But while I had more or less a toolbox for interrogating the work of sex, which I did, I realized that I was less prepared for exploring the sex of work. So I developed the two set of methods, and I'm going to talk about the art-based one, uh, or we call here in Canada, research creation. 
So I wonder how to explore this liveness that, that was happening in the platform without putting a pin on it first, recognizing also my involvement with the research. So my strategy was to reduce the problem in literal terms. So I set up an interpretation of the Chatterbait room as both my stage and research device. As in a misunderstanding, the platform room became a miniaturized one. The performer was someone who performs. I developed a series of performative intervention on the platform broadcasting from this dollhouse and mixing domestic actions with playful erotic ones. The dollhouse became <clears throat> my expanded interface and stage and the act of playing was the most important tool for discovery. And although there was humor in my approach, there was no mockery. Even if my earnings did not depend on my success on the platform, I had to develop a schedule and a show, lure an audience and retain it. I had to work there and be open to unexpected encounters and accident. Also in passing from being part of the audience to being a performer, even a silly one, I realized how quickly I lose my right toward the platform. Well, this method and the testimonies I gather gave me important insight into the sex camp platform. I do not claim to have other experience than mine. I have not. However, the dollhouse allowed me to combine theory with a concrete and personal account and go back and forth between them. In a sort of small feminist methodology, the dollhouse allowed me to situate my position regarding the research. Moreover, and in a kind of queer method, it allowed me to embrace the awkwardness and instability of that position, both an insider and an outsider, privileged and precarious. So this was one attempt at developing what I'm calling a living method, not necessarily the right one and surely not the only possible. But I believe that living method can help in accounting for a broader range of experience and for things that are changing fast, including bodies and structures. In closing, while I want to challenge, challenge exceptionalism for approaching online sex work, I had also to recognize its particularities and dynamic things. I'm making a case for embracing complexity in an open, creative, and solidary way, not only as a rewarding personal path of discovery, but a political responsibility. The usual oversimplification and exclusion of sex workers and sex work related topics reinforce discrimination and limit the understanding. Thus, I'm making a case both for the recognition and challenge of differential exploitation in online sex work and its living dimension. As Juana Maria Rodriguez says, sex is always more than personal. Thank you. Thank you so much, Antonia. Such a beautiful and innovative way to engage with this topic and also again to, to embrace some of these dualities and, and be both an insider and an outsider and play with that exactly. Um, I was just wondering if maybe you have anything to respond to each other's presentations right now um, before I move on to some other questions. Well, I, I you said too many, too much things that were like so interesting, Lorelei. Uh, I really, I, I really, well, there's, there's so much there, but I was thinking what you were saying about the, the online space as like a non-aseptic one, kind of like a, a this, 
this kind of like a disembodied place where we are kind of like angels, uh, like and a way to and 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 well, y your work is like is challenging that that conception. But uh, I was thinking that there's there's a lot there to unpack about this. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, just speaking about sex workers specifically, uh, being online for us has been both a space in which we can create uh, broader political movements, find each other across time and distance, uh, talk about things that we didn't have other connections to talk about before and talk about them even publicly on social media. So we're having these conversations that are pretty intimate uh, and we're having them in public. And um, simultaneously, you know, and we, oh, and I should add, because of this idea that you're talking about, this idea that we are all um, sort of non-existent beings moving through a non-existent plane, uh, we have the capacity to create some level of, of privacy, of safety in order to allow us to do that kind of engagement. But simultaneously and increasingly over the last decade, online space has become more dangerous for people in the sex trades um, and dangerous in multiple ways. I'm sure I don't have to tell you, you know, um, but online suppression and exclusion being less access to um, all kinds of resources, including mutual aid, including housing, including just like the building of political coalitions. Um, and also the, uh, surveillance, online surveillance is working in this way where, for example, uh, folks can get outed to their families by connecting, you know, through facial recognition, by connecting one uh, account to another where people are tr have are trying to keep <laughs> these pieces of themselves separate. Uh, yeah, I do think it's really complicated. Um, and I'm interested to know what you think of that same question, um, thinking of it through the lens of your research. Yeah, well, this is, well, this is, well, fascinating. It sounds like a, it's, sounds a little superficial because it's big, but it's fascinating because it's, you have like at the same time this kind of like very neoliberal landscape where like as you were describing before like the, this figure of the entrepreneur and like I, I can be like and, and this very meritocratic discourse I can be whatever I want etc etc and then you face very concrete uh, structural discriminatory practices that are that are not like a <clears throat> that are not casual they are not incidental but are like at the very core of this kind of like new structures that su are supposedly super well nobody nobody think that that the social media is neutral right now but it was for a long time that that thing that like oh is techno is technology uh, it doesn't have like discourse uh, like inside right but now we are like and and i think the the thing with the sex industry is that you have such much like in your face how like discriminatory practices are structural and and what happened when you like when you face them so 
so so we have like at the same time this very like neoliberal discourse but with as you were mentioning before like with such amount of surveillance and such amount of control so it's it's a very kind of like a post-capitalist thing uh, which we we can see like in <clears throat> a face value in, in the sex industry, especially like online industry, right? Absolutely. And I think you're sort of bringing up something else, which is uh, the way that these tools, mm, like, so I'm, I think I'm just going to tell this in like a personal narrative kind of way, which is just, I, so I started, I didn't, my first job online was in 2000 and um, my boyfriend had a friend who had a website and I didn't have internet access at that time. I didn't have a computer. I thought computers were this thing rich people had and I didn't know any rich people. So I thought naked pictures online, no one's ever gonna see that. Me masturbating online, no one's ever gonna see that. I was 19. <laughs> um, and but also uh, an important part of that story is I mean one one thing that I take from it is the way that these tools have changed and how they mediate our lives um, but another is that I didn't have access to these tools and so I had a third party who was a mediary between me and doing sex work and who was doing all of the negotiating um, and that was a toxic relationship as well, I might add. Um, and I was young and poor and I didn't have a lot. Um, I just didn't have a lot of anything, you know, so you're just like, so anyway, the next, my next sort of like entry into sex work was when I did have access to a computer and I started using Craigslist in the early 2000s. And it was such a different experience because I was doing all of the negotiating myself. I was putting up my own ads. I had this level of control over the work while simultaneously not having a level of control because of my economic situation and because of just sort of like the age and status of most of the people who were my clients at that time. Uh, then I, what I did in order to combat that lack of control is get an agent. So again, a third party mediator who I moved in with, who made a lot, a lot of rules, but who like, um, controlled all of our, you know, um, like you like booked everything for us, booked all of our work for us, but also provided this level of sort of security as a mediator. And then came 2008 and the iPhone. And the iPhone has changed everything. I mean, it didn't happen immediately, but over time, performers have more and more and more and more been able to create content themselves, uh, post it themselves, oftentimes to third party, you know, platforms that still have a lot of control over like how much money you make and, you know, how much they take and how you have to upload it and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they, those companies are interacting with legal mechanisms too, in a way that I'm not as like maybe a little too complicated to get into for the point I'm making now, but uh, there's pluses and minuses to this. That's all I'm, that's sort of where I'm trying to go with this. At the same time that performers have gained access 
um, to sort of a level of control and also like contacting with contact with each other over social media in order to like negotiate in book shoots and that kind of thing. Um, the studio system, which is sort of the old system that I entered into um, with my agent has lost most of its power, uh, I would say and a, a lot, a lot of income. And so performers who used to be able to use the studio system and do like one or two shoots in order to leverage themselves to have higher income in other forms of sex work, that's not really available anymore. Um, and then you have the rise of Pornhub, which I know we weren't gonna talk about, I'm sorry. <laughs> it just like okay. opening, it a comes whole other, opening a whole nother thing. But they, the point is they took the bottom out of this sort of like possibility of, of individual control over the work and by, you know, using their model of pirating. Um, so I don't know. I just think about that cycle that we're in with technology. I think it's really interesting and fascinating how you describe sort of this move from one mediator to the next mediator mm -hmm. and how that revolves around each other. Um, I think there's so much stuff to respond to already, um, but just sort of circling back to some of the more original stuff we maybe were talking about as well. Um, this sort of historical move from different kinds of sex work and then sex work moving online, um, I think one of the essential elements of the digital age and the internet age and working online is um, a bit of a mismatch between being in one location, but then being able for your content and your work to be everywhere. Um, and this, this global and local mashup that you get, where even here, we're all in different locations and we're all able to, uh, to talk to each other, which can be wonderful when it's this. Um, but I was wondering if you would be able to comment a little bit about these intricacies of the local and the global intersecting online and then in online sex work specifically. Well, I think Lorelei is more savvy in terms of uh, legislation and, and maybe I can talk about like media formats later, but I think uh, it's your topic, Lorelei. Really? Oh, I was thinking, you know, that you might have a lot to say because <laughs> of the, well, because of this idea of the individual, of this, like, I feel like I, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is something you've written about, which is sort of the idea of the individual supposedly intimate interaction being, but being broadcast globally in a way that I think you said um, there's a tension between the value of the thing you're selling and the inherent loss of that value mm -hmm. by its public nature. Oh yeah, well, such a good point. <laughs> this is your point, this is your point. <laughs> no, I was yeah. Well, I, what I was thinking is something that we had in we we discussed uh, in our conversation before about the this like how like l local laws like apply globally and like what's the and what happened mm -hmm. with like things mm -hmm. that are like worldwide are but based on the United States, so they like those legislations are like applicable for the rest of the world, th that kind of things. And so, <clears throat> so what we have like at the same time, something that is like 
oh, across the globe, but local. So like that kind of tension as are, are yeah. very something. And 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 yes, well, but but as you you were saying, this thing about like a like a this this kind of like my the the like the this value of like not not like sharing your intimacy your context uh, globally and like that that kind of like other connection that happened and and i was thinking also uh, but that's another point the when you were saying about like this kind of like the kind of like the what they call in ai kind of like the last mile like you reach a point and then there's like new new requirements for technology and then you have to like uh, i don't know for example in 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 the the area that i know more like the the webcams you have uh, like if you are hd you have hd camera you are like you ha you are like better positioned uh, so that like increase your visibility and visibility is everything right because the competition is wild uh, but also like and and that's a, an interesting point that you were saying about like the the studio because for example a lot of people especially like in in in, in countries like uh, Colombia or East Europe uh, they they are going to join a studio because the studio has like HD camera, like very good bandwidth. Uh, uh, like maybe they don't speak English, and there's like people that that help like uh, communicating with the audience because communicating is such a, an important part. So like, it's interesting what you're saying about the like the the the, the porn studios like losing uh, power, but in other contexts they're kind of like gaining. So this. It's interesting, like as, as you were saying, Hane, like think globally about these things because it's yeah, it's more complex. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, there's so much that you've just brought up, and just I mean, I think you're absolutely right about the way that technology increases at a speed. I mean, so much of sex work is pretending that you're not the kind of person who needs to do sex work. And that is like the, <laughs> the way to make money yeah. uh, doing sex work. And it is extremely frustrating, um, the level of like class drag that you have to put on. And part of that drag being access to technology. Um, we used to joke that the HD people must be in bed with the Botox people because when, <laughs> I mean, I'm showing my age, but like when HD started being a thing, we were like, what is this bullshit? Why do you want to see that much of me? Like, I don't look that good that way, you know? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I think that the lighting improved with time, huh? Because uh, we learned, like, yeah. Like, like way too raw. <laughs> yes, exactly. And all of your makeup is so visible. <laughs> it's like it's such a mess, just a mess. Um, but I wanted to come back to the point you were making about U.S. law. And this is something that we discussed previously and that um, has been really frustrating. I mean, there are a number of ways that US law controls the ways that other countries interact with sex work. Um, 
And specific to online sex work, of course, FOSTA-SESTA is a big one. Um, this is a law that passed in 2018. It's the stands for, I think it stands for the Freedom from Online Sex Trafficking Act, but I may have one of those words wrong. And um, it is, uh, after the law was passed, I actually wrote a paper with a whole group of people about um, what that law might do because nobody knew. And it, it has, I think, um, six different sections that applies to six different parts of the law. It's worth noting that one of the sections is simply an amendment of a law that was passed in the early 20th century by a coalition, including those purity, uh, purity movement feminists called the White Slave Traffic Act. Um, which still is on the books in the United States. And so you can kind of see how sex work regulation has been deeply intertwined with racism in the United States and with maintaining racial hierarchy and really controlling race in the United States. Um, but that sort of is a side, is, I mean, is it a side note? Is it central? I think it's pretty central, but I... <laughs> But I'm, um, but coming back to the question of how it's impacted other countries, because so many um, online spaces uh, are controlled by U.S. companies, that law ended up applying to uh, in to websites that are used by people in countries where, for example, sex work is legal. Um, as well, I mean, it it really made web companies conform to what to a false version of what the law actually says. And so I think this is something else we talked about, which is um, that when the websites reacted, they were reacting to public comment about the law much more than to the actual changes in the law. And really, I think what that law did more than anything is to um, stoke fears about the internet as a mechanism for trafficking rather than try to determine, well, you know, and this happened without trying to determine whether that is true. The rhetoric, um, you know, and the rhetoric of modern day slavery, which I, I personally believe comes out of these sort of racist roots of these laws um, is really used very casually and without thinking about its actual meaning. Um, yeah, and those that's worldwide, of course. Yeah, no, it's, it's so interesting what you're saying because it's, it's, a, it's this very complicated thing of like kind of like preemptive censorship, right? Because mm -hmm. it's like, it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of like a, it's a pre, it's like, okay, there's a, a law or an act uh, that is in place, but there's like we can see private companies reacting preemptively toward this law instead of like looking for other ways to to address the problem that they can have. Uh, so so we have again uh, the private sector making crucial decisions for everyone. Uh, and and that's something that is like a, that I didn't expect to encounter in in my research, but like became like the most important part. It was like 
the power of the pay, the power that like payment providers have in shaping public discourse and and who has access to things and who hasn't and where the decisions are are based on moral and per, and very personal values but not they're not rational or logic or mm-hmm. like based on like uh, evidence or there's just like what the board of those companies think of, think preemptively about these things and the, the the and with what kind of people or what sector they want to make business with and not without as a very small example but so telling in Charut Bay you can you can buy the the this money that you can use there with PayPal but you cannot be paid with PayPal mm-hmm. so like the the logic is is in the realm that you were you were mentioning but not not in a in another like rational or logical realm yeah yeah I'm sorry I I'm so sorry but I think otherwise we're gonna run out of time because there's so many things to say here um because yeah you were talking about sort of what what value and intimacy means globally but then also all these this lot like law and legislation stuff is very important and things like PayPal not actually being able to pay performers obviously also has a global effect um, and that impacts a lot of people's lives. But we're also getting some interesting questions in the chat. So I'm gonna, I'm sorry for hijacking the amazing conversation, but I'm gonna ask some of those questions. Um, And of course, one of them is about the current pandemic, which I think makes total sense. Um, But this is from Jeff Auslos, I'm not sure. Um, And he, or they're saying that they're wondering whether the pandemic has played an empowering or democratizing role for sex workers. Um, so in the sense of being stuck at home, only amateur content gets produced or is it simply giving more power again to, to sort of the big platforms with here as the example Pornhub? I think it has not had a democratizing impact at all. It has had a very, very devastating impact on sex workers. And that's been true across the board. And it's true for a lot of reasons. One is that many, many sex workers who use uh, technological tools to um, do in-person sex work, for example, are now trying, needing, because of economic pressure, to become fully online sex workers, doing camming, um, creating clips, etc. And many of those sex workers don't have personal private space, don't necessarily have access to the technology to do that form of online sex work, uh, and you know, oftentimes share their phones, for example, or, um, you know, even this uh, point that Antonia was making about the financial platforms, uh, the financial platforms themselves discriminate against sex workers. And so uh, PayPal, Venmo, Square Cash all kick sex workers off or people they profile as being sex workers. Um, And so both Um, in terms of receiving payment for your work, but also in terms of trying to do mutual aid for folks who all of a sudden have no access to um, work. Uh, It's been a whole mess. Uh, 
uh, and and we are very at every turn we are prevented from sharing uh, cash with each other or from receiving cash, um, and that includes uh, pandemic unemployment assistance, which oftentimes uh, folks have had trouble accessing, partly because they feel like they don't have enough. Um, they don't have like the the social membership required to ask for that, or also because folks don't have work histories that and um, tax histories that are needed in order to apply for that. And then the last thing I need to say about it is that also there has been a flood into websites like OnlyFans, which I hate to talk about, but uh, other sites as well of folks who lost their non-sex work jobs and are pushed to doing online sex work. So yeah, unfortunately it has not been good for anyone. Yeah, um, I think before we again have too much to say about this, um, two things. We, the other webinar we did on online sex work goes into the COVID and sex work online um, discussion more also in different contexts. So if, if you're interested, you can look at that on the website and on YouTube, um, I think everything that Lorelai said um, is unfortunately also repeated there because it seems to be the experience. Um, but there's some more questions. And I think also Antonia, um, I've heard you talk about this maybe a little bit before. Um, Maggie's raising that uh, sort of on new younger platforms, there seems to be an emerging sort of purity culture um, and in relation to what Lorelai mentioned about uh, sort of class drag, is there some sort of purity, respectability drag that is being needed to perform um, on these platforms? I think that also goes into questions of maybe professionalization um, on that kind of mm -hmm. work. I was wondering what you thought of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I was, I was thinking... Not that we want to talk about OnlyFans, but <laughs> we are here. <laughs> the is I I call that gentrification in in the I think I think is I'm not saying about I'm not uh, talking bad about the the people that are like going to OnlyFans. I think the 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 system is based on gentrification in the and and in the sense that like and it's very explicit in OnlyFans is it's not that you are going to build a popularity you you cannot like capitalize your pre-existing popularity and it's it's straightforward. I'm not like making this up. It's like you have a, there's a slide on the side and you can calculate your amount of followers on other social media and how much you could possibly uh, receive if you, so it's, 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 I think it's, I think we are kind of like in a, in a new stage of social media where it's not this like all oh, these fantastic things it's like okay how how i'm gonna capitalize on this popularity so it's it's an and and by design people that have like pre-existing popularity in other platforms are going to receive uh, the like the bulk of the thing so it's a uh, so so i think that's that is, yeah, it's like com coming back to the, the question about like if this thing is like democratizing, like, well, it is not. And, uh, and, and it's, uh, it's designed for 
capitalizing on like network effects where like things more popular are going to be more popular and are going to be more popular so there's a like the the and they curve it like the for example in the in the webcam and and also like in youtube the like the curve is like this right like there's like few people with a lot of followers and the rest that isn't there in the this very very long tail so yeah Lorelai, do you also have any comments on that? Uh, yeah, I um, I mean, I do think that this purity, uh, purity performance is another good point to bring up and it's not new, it's very old. Uh, and the idea of a performer's purity as ha purity meaning sexual purity, uh, like to be clear what we're talking about and sexual purity mean meaning uh, the least amount of sex. <laughs> um, having had the least amount of sex being somehow the most uh, expensive way to be. But, uh, <laughs> sorry, I can't, it's so funny to me. But um, one thing I just wanna say about that is that um, I, I personally have capitalized a lot on that sort of performance that's been some of my bread and butter uh, as a, you know, blonde, white, blue-eyed person who very much fits that role, um, eh, at least, or that paradigm or whatever it is. And there is something I like about it too. There's something where I think that by performing this purity, purity drag, uh, we are also deconstructing it. Like, to be a whore who is performing virginity and gets to do it again and again is like such a mind fuck, you know? It's like, um, I am proving that the value of virginity is nothing because actually it's super valuable when performed by a whore. Like <laughs> that's who's making the money off of it. So <laughs> I don't know, I there's just something I like about that. Yeah, I think sometimes things that sound like they don't make sense can be very liberating. <laughs> I think you described that perfectly. Um, perfect answer, I think, to the question from both of you. Uh, I think a quick one, don't know how you, how you think about this and feel about this, but in terms of sort of the power that is held by these payment processors, um, there's a question about, have you seen any positive changes with cryptocurrencies coming up? And I don't know if you both know about that at all. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, Antonio, did you want to? No, no, no. Go ahead. Um, uh, so part of my work is as an organizer um, and as a researcher and et cetera, I wear a lot of hats, but I hate that term also. <laughs> but anyway, um, one of my projects is very focused on financial discrimination. And financial discrimination happens both at the platform level where um, folks are excluded individually based on um, sort of algorithmic uh, profiling, but it also happens structurally as we've already talked about uh, in like lack the fact that folks are being excluded from technology entirely, um, but also in the reduction in the utility of cash. Um, and so, uh, I'm sorry, I just like lost my train of thought. That's totally <laughs> fine. There's a lot happening. Um, I, yeah, I know, I know. Um, 
cryptocurrency. Oh, cryptocurrency. Is it, yes, is it right. And anyway, thank you so much. Stabilize the power. You guys, I have to, I'm just going to say right here, I have chronic illness and sometimes my brain just goes out. Uh, but okay, so to respond to your question about cryptocurrency, it's very, very inaccessible. That's all I was trying to say. Like sex workers are out here just trying to figure out where they can pay for their rent using cash, you know, like there's just like so many levels of discrimination that I think the question of cryptocurrency is one that's really interesting at a theoretical level, but not at a practical level. I think that makes a lot of sense as an answer. Antonia, have you experienced or seen things related no, to cryptocurrency? I, I, I love what Lorelai said and yeah, and I, I have the same thought, yeah. I think we're already getting close to the end um, oh, the flowers by, I know. Um, and I think there's a good question for both of you um, to sort of end on for now, which is um, from Alex Hecker. And it's saying, how would you both comment on the changes in the aesthetical, so how it looks, and the interfacial, how it's accessed qualities of online sex work? Um, so there's definitely already been this 20 years. Um, the look of sex work online has changed, but also the platforms, their interfaces and how, how we interact and what buttons you can press have definitely changed in that time. Um, how, how do you comment on that? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, my, my view is that, that things that, that were uh, kind of like blooming with the, with the internet at the beginning, which is was this kind of like this amateur quality and like uh, like everyone in their own places doing thing. I think we are like coming a little bit past of that, uh, and and we are like in 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 a new stage where you are expect to be like highly professional, even if you like, I think we are like more in this, uh, what Silvio Leruso calls like the entre precariat <laughs> and the entre precariat of the, the sex work in, in this case will be like that you, you're like precarious as ever, but you have to look highly professional and you, and, and the standards are like every day, like higher. And, but at the same time, more homogeneous. So you you have you have like a like your appearance is more homogeneous. It's like every like I think we are we are not in the amateur vibe anymore. It's more like that. It's like what thing I think was like accelerated with the pandemic. It's like yeah, you work for home, from home, but your home have to look like an office, like. It's, it's kind of like this this thing that, uh, yeah, I think we are in this professionalization new era of things in general, yeah. I think this is a really interesting question and I feel a little bit uncertain as to whether the question is asking about how the um, performance looks and how the performance is accessed or how the tech looks and how the tech is accessed. Um, because I feel like I, I hear this question and I'm thinking about it from a, a worker standpoint, which is, would be to think about the tech and how you access the tech and how it has continued to change. And 
my impression over time is that sex workers built the internet, really. I mean, like the VCR, the online itself, like, like all of these were developments that just allowed people to access sexual performances more and more in private. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, porn producers who developed the technology necessary to um, buy something online, to stream a video online. And I think that uh, performers, workers have really gotten the bad end of this deal because we, it sometimes seems as though we are constantly innovating the, in how we're using the websites um, that people have created for our performance, in order to sell our performances. Um, and then as soon as we uh, do the innovation that makes them the most um, excitable and usable, they start to kick sex workers off, just like this gentrification that Antoni Antonia was talking about. Um, yeah, so I guess that's also all I'll say yeah. at the end. I think that is a good summary of some of the developments. Um, Antonia is also nodding. Uh, yeah, I think unfortunately that was the last question as well that we had time for. Um, because we, we said only an hour and <laughs> we knew maybe starting that it would be a little bit unreasonable because we there's so much to talk about. And I think we, we, we wanted to talk about more. We wanted to maybe talk about knowledge production on sex work and power and more things implicated there. Um, I think we can have many more calls and chats about this in the future. Um, and I, I look forward to them happening. Some of them will be part of hopefully this Global Digital Cultures webinar series. Um, and I would really like to thank all of our audience members for being here um, for your interesting questions as well. I think we really have spoken about some good stuff here. And of course, my biggest, biggest thanks goes to Lorelai and Antonia um, for presenting so well and so good and just doing such a good job here today. Um, also, quick side note, thanks to Monica and Victoria for doing all the admin and the technological stuff. It's very important. Otherwise, we definitely would not have been able to do this. So thank you massively. And yeah, a massive thank you to, to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> we can clap for each other. Yeah, nice clapping. <laughs>